Cynthia Bastian. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. And this is Southern Queries. Exploring all things LGBTQ in the South. Hi, Aubrey. <laughs> hey, India. How's it going? Good. Um, it's going good. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think I've just had like a really long week, so my processing time seems kind of out of it, but yes, it's going good. That is great, you know? Hey, sometimes good is the best we can do. You yeah. Know? Um, Aubrey, how's it going with you? I'm good. But you've had some exciting things happen, and I want you to shout them out. It was fun. I've had fun lately is what it's been. Oh, and I wanted to, I do want to shout out uh, in February, if, if you go listen to the February episode of History is Gay, one of our favorite podcasts and one of our best podcasting friends, uh, I'm on there with Lee and we're talking about queer members of the civil rights movement. So besides Bayard Rustin, who they have a whole episode talking about him we're just talking about how the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s had a lot of gay and lesbian people in it yeah and it was it was fun to talk it was fun talking to them you know i keep telling lee that they're the only person i'm willing to read a dissertation for to research an episode just for fun and you know lee's just cool and they were fun to talk to and you know I've guest hosted on their show before back in the summer and while we were researching this episode they told me about this opportunity where they were giving a talk with the University of Texas at Dallas and they invited me to be a part of that talk and I think the people at UT Dallas are some of the coolest people I don't know they were just cool it was fun so just shout out to them wow and well, today we want to talk about the politics of same-sex marriage, and we think it's an important thing to talk about um, the political side of marriage because this is a Southern-based show, and the Southern states, historically not surprised, um, have been the one the ones that are most resistant to legalizing marriage between same-gendered couples. Yes. And I think if we're going to do this series on, you know, queer weddings, we kind of have to talk about the fact that but before the 2015 Supreme Court decision, not a single Southern state had a law recognizing gay or lesbian marriages. Um, yeah. And, and just for terminology, when we say gay and lesbian, we are also including, you know, bisexuals and pansexuals that are in same gender relationship. So we're not saying you don't count if you're bisexual or pansexual. It's just, there's only so many times you can say gay marriage, lesbian marriage, same sex marriage, but we're including all of our queer type marriages basically. Um, there were a few states that had recognized or that had legalized same sex marriage, but that was done by federal court order. 
And there's already so much out there about this topic that we don't want to try to cover every single case because <laughs> there's a lot. Um, and every political event that's ever happened in the marriage equality fight. Um, but I do like want to recognize that there is a lot out there. Um, but we do want to maybe put a Southern spin on it a little. So Aubrey, how are we going to cover all of this? <laughs> well, I think we should spend the entire hour bashing religious conservatives and how much they hate us. No? <laughs> Is that not the, no? Well, the religious conservatives in the South, they hate us so much. No? That, that's probably not the best way to do it. Um, no. <laughs> no. I think we should look at it in two ways. First, we should look at the history of Southern resistance to queer marriage and how the South played a part leading up to that 2015 decision. And then we want to look at the current issues related to same-sex marriage and what it has done for the larger LGBTQ plus rights movement. Yes, and for more of a comprehensive look at the history of marriage and equality fight, we'll provide links on our website to some books, podcasts, and articles that talk about this issue more in depth. Uh, we're going to start with the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the 1996 law mainly pushed by Republicans in Congress, but signed by President Bill Clinton, a Democrat. And the law said that the federal government would not recognize marital unions between two people of the same sex. And it said that individual states had the freedom to decide whether to allow gay marriages in their state and whether or not to recognize the marriages of gay and lesbian couples married in other states. Ugh. <laughs> yes, yes. And this is one of those where Bill Clinton has come out and said, yeah, this was wrong, and I shouldn't have signed it, and I'm sorry, and this was one of those, like, regrets of his presidency kind of thing, mm, mm. but, you know, this was always one of those where he said, yeah, it was political pressure and all that, um, but after this law, southern states, most of whom already had laws in the books outlawing private consensual sexual acts between people of the same sex uh, started enacting laws stating marriage was a union only between one man and one woman. Um, and some of these southern states went so far as to put this in their state constitution. Ugh, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's not enough to have the law. They added it into the, I mean, you got to love it when you put it in the constitution. Like, for example, our, in 2004, uh, the constitutions in Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Oklahoma were all changed. Ours in Texas was changed in 2005. 2006 had Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. 2008 had Florida. North Carolina had 2012. We probably missed a few others in there, but yeah. So they were definitely trying not just to say it was illegal, but to put it in their constitution. And they added these to their state constitutions then to strengthen the anti-marriage laws that they already had in place. And they did this because legally married gay and lesbian couples had begun to move to the South. Uh, hello, it's cheaper. 
Yes, right? I mean, and warmer. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, it is. I mean, I mean, when you see the mid 2000s, there is definitely a population population shift beginning in this country. I mean, that huge internet dot com bubble burst and feel like I'm feeling my Gen X by just saying dot com bubble. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just one of those another reminder crap. I'm turning 40 this year, this month, <laughs> uh, this year. Uh, but yeah, more people started to leave major coastal cities and big northern cities, and they started to come down south. So the cost of living is lower, like you were just saying, and it was warmer. And that included couples that were already married up north or out west, and they wanted their marriage recognized in our southern state. Many of these couples were gay and lesbians who were born and raised in the South and maybe moved away to try and find more accepting climate and decided to come home. Or maybe they were, had always been in the South, but had, gone, but had gone North to get married. I had the fortunate pleasure to talk to one of those people. Uh, and we want to play some of my conversation with him. His name is Greg Burke. And he, along with his husband, Michael DeLeon, were actually part of the 2015 Supreme Court decision. Fascinating. A lot of people don't realize that Obergefell decision wasn't one lawsuit. It was actually multiple cases consolidated into one that involved 16 couples, six states, and children of gay couples. Some of those cases came from Tennessee and Kentucky. So who is Greg? Well, Greg Burke was actually the lead plaintiff in the series of Kentucky cases that made it to the Supreme Court. And so it was him, and I think it was like three, him and his husband, and like three other couples that wanted to get married in, in Kentucky. He was still nice enough to talk to me about it, and it was just a great conversation to have. So just a few questions about the court case itself, because I know you and Michael, you met years ago. You were actually married in Ontario before applying for a marriage license in Kentucky. Why did you decide to go to apply for the license in, uh, in Kentucky, Louisville? So uh, there, there's a lot of history behind that. So um... Michael and I had been together for, you know, quite a long time. Um, we met in 1982. Uh, but by 2004, there, um, there was a lot of movement in the country. A lot of states were starting to look at civil unions. Um, some were starting, some of the progressive states were starting to, to try to get marriage equality laws passed. Um, and so there was that, that movement that was, that was coming along. Um, that scared a lot of people, especially a lot of people in the South. And, and you may recall some of this, but there were a lot of Southern states that passed constitutional amendments to ban same-sex marriage um, starting in those early 2000 years. So um, in 2004, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, where I live, uh, had its, its big push to get a constitutional ban in place. So there was, um, there was a there was a campaign that went across the Commonwealth. Um, you know, people had to choose a side, yes or no, we want to ban same-sex marriage forever. 
in our constitution or not. And 75% of Kentuckians voted to ban same-sex marriage. So um, it, was a, it was a dreadful time to be a Kentuckian in a, in a same-sex relationship. Um, there was just a, a lot of negative press, a lot of demonizing going on. And so Michael and I thought, you know, perhaps the best thing that we could do in that climate was to go to the one place in North America where we could get legally married at that time. So when we got married uh, on uh, March 29th, 2004, the only place we could get married in North America was Ontario, Canada. So, so that's what we did. Um, we thought that was the best way that we could kind of deal with some of the, um, you know, just kind of the hatred and the, the ill feelings that we were experiencing back in the Commonwealth. And you know, we always hoped that someday that um, that marriage in, in Canada would be recognized in Kentucky. You know, it's like we were kind of playing a long game, thinking, hoping, praying that someday that marriage would be recognized. But I tell you, we had we had no idea that we would ever be part of actually making that happen. What led you then? Because if you got married in 2004, the actual court case for when you applied for your Kentucky marriage license was 2011? So we, um, I know I'm getting the number wrong. I'm trying not to look so, at my notes here. <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, I'm an old guy. So sometimes I got to look at my notes too. And I got to <laughs> no. look at that date just so I can tell you. So we actually filed our court case on July 27th, 2013. So 20, that was Burke, okay. Burke versus Bashir. And, and, you know, that's kind of a strategic date because it was precisely um, a month after the Windsor case and the uh, Prop 8 cases for California were decided by the Supreme Court. And those were pivotal cases. So when those uh, two rulings came out of the Supreme Court, um, especially Prop 8, I mean, they were both so important and so significant, but especially Prop 8 was dealing with the question of can a state, i.e. the state of California, um, pass a constitutional amendment to ban same-sex marriage and say that that can never happen. And the ruling was was that no, they can't do that, but it only applied to California. Yeah. So that, that really left the door open for every other state in the country that didn't have same-sex marriage or that faced a constitutional ban like Kentucky did to, um, to kind of say, okay, uh, they left the door open. Let's bring some cases to court and see what happens. And um, our case, Burke versus Bashir, was the first Southern state to challenge a state constitutional ban. So we were, we were really kind of ahead of the curve when we got ours going in Kentucky. Um, and, you know, we were, we were pleased to do that. <laughs> it, it, I always, you know, because I, I teach government, and one of my main focuses has always been interest groups. And you hear about these court cases that end up at the Supreme Court and are monumental, and they tend to happen in one of two ways. One is that you sincerely want the marriage license and it was denied, so you make the decision to go to court. And the other was that the court case was intentional, that you knew it was going to be denied and the reason you filed was to bring the court action. Which mm -hmm. would you say you, you and your husband were, which category were you all in? Well, when we filed the case, it was we wanted to have it recognized. We yeah. didn't under, you know, one of our arguments and, and our, one of the arguments that our attorneys used is that any other couple that was married in Canada, you know, would automatically have their marriages, the same sex couple that was married in Canada or an opposite sex couple would automatically have those marriages recognized in Kentucky. So it's just a very clear 
case of discrimination in our case. Um, and so that, that was kind of our motivation um, was that, well, we got married for one reason, which I explained, but we filed the court case yeah. for a whole different reason. And, and there's more to that backstory. And, you know, I, I talk about it a lot um, in my book, and I've talked about it a lot over the years is, you know, it's, it's about our family. So Michael and I have two adopted children and the Commonwealth of Kentucky um, will not allow two single, you know, unmarried people to co-adopt children. So, you know, when we filed, so when we filed in 2013, we'd been co-parenting our children for 14 or going on 15 years, but only one person was recognized as parent on, on, the, um, on the birth certificates and legally. So what we had to live with for all those years, and, and Michael, my husband, was the adoptive parent, um, you know, I had to live with that fear of what if something happened to him? Yeah. Um, what would the courts do? Because I had no legal um, control over or relationship with my my children. Um, and that was the motivation for our, our um, court case was that we thought that our family deserved the same protection that every other family deserved. You know, if, if one, of the, one of the spouses dies, the children have, you know, have that right to expect that their lives will go on. They'll continue to be cared for by their other parent. Um, and, and that was really our motivation. We wanted to do whatever we could to help protect our children, to protect our family. And, and that's really what motivated our court case. Isn't it always about the kids, you know? And <laughs> Because there is that fear, like, what happens if, to Michael, do your kids end up in child protective services and the foster care system or, heaven forbid, a family member or relative that isn't supportive of you, you do want to make sure they're protected. I mean, that's right. how we do so many things. That is the fear. And that yeah. was the fear that we lived with. And we weren't the only couple that was like that. I mean, Kentucky, so our in our case, we were the... Um, the first couple that filed in Kentucky. And, but then, you know, after a couple of months went on, our attorneys thought that it would be good to add other couples to the case. Um, so we added three other couples who had been together for long term. Um, and they were all three other couples who had been previously married in legal jurisdictions, California, Iowa. Um, I can't remember where the third one was, but we were all legally married. But two of those other families had children. So it's like there were a lot of kids involved in this case. And a lot of people don't realize that. They hear that Obergefell versus Hodges and they think of Jim, which we all do. Um, he's a wonderful man and I love him. But there were 37 plaintiffs in that case yes. from four different states. And seven of those plaintiffs or children, and, and not all the children were added to the case. So each family had to make a decision whether or not to list their dependent children as plaintiffs or not. So in our case, um, you know, we, Michael and I, we had a meeting with our children twice and asked them, you know, if they wanted to be plaintiffs in the case. And you know, they were old enough; they were in their, you know, mid to late teens, and so they understood the question, and they were able to make an informed semi-adult decision and they joined. And there were other um, children who were part of the case as well. So your point is, is right. I mean, it was a lot about the kids. Um, in Jim Obergefell's case, it was about a death certificate. Um, but for most of us, it was about you know marriage certificates and especially birth certificates for children. That's really what the case was about. Yeah, that's a big one, you know? And I think people don't always think about the danger of listing your name as a plaintiff. 
because those are public records. So you're opening yourself, your family, your kids to public scrutiny, to harassment, to violence, the potential blowback from a community or even just the internet of crazy people can be so scary. Yeah, it got frightening at times, um, as you might imagine especially coming from, from Kentucky. Kentucky's a very conservative state. Um, and a lot of the Southern states are, although some of them are changing, um, some faster than others, but Kentucky's not. Kentucky's changing in any way. We seem to be getting more conservative um, <laughs> as time goes on, um, which can be a little disturbing. So that, that means that when, when we sued our governor, so another, another important fact about our case was that not only did we sue our governor and attorney general so that they would recognize our, our out-of-state marriage, but these two people happened to be Democrats. And they oppose, you know, they did not side with marriage equality. And, and so, you know, let that process for a while. For the um, longest time, this was the, an issue that divided Democrats. Where it, Democrats it would that some Democrats were completely against it, some were for, some supported the idea of a civil union, but right. it wasn't the united front you get from the mm. Democratic Party now. Right, right. And and I only bring that up because, you know, you, you, you've raised the issue of, you know, it can be kind of scary because, you know, we received, you know, some some threats and some some mail and some things that were very disturbing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the nature of the issue um, because people, you know, felt like they needed to defend traditional marriage. Um, you know, it's our location, the, you know, the, the conservativeness of, of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you know, all those things kind of kind of bubble together and it made it kind of frightening for us. Now, I will tell you that like most, um, like a lot of Southern states, um, Kentucky's very conservative overall, especially the rural areas. But when you get into the cities like Louisville, where I live, or Lexington, or Bowling Green, you know, pick the cities, um, and they tend to be very progressive and very supportive. So we've always felt like we've been kind of in this blue bubble um, in Louisville, and uh, and that helped a lot. So you know we didn't fear too much um, about bad things happening to us, but but they could have. Clearly. Oh, but you they do hear have. about those blue bubbles, absolutely. You know, like I'm in Texas. We're in the North uh, Texas Dallas area, and we're mm-hmm. here because it's sort of a blue bubble. Yeah, we do have a level of security around us whereas if we were to go to other parts of texas we would be out of the bubble so we right out. <laughs> well we've been hearing for years that you know texas is going to flip it's close to purple if not purple already and it's going to get there and i'm telling you what you're going to get there long before long before kentucky gets there i'll guarantee that i i, so. I, be, I believe that i believe that you know uh, in fort worth where i live we're, we're the only conservative county that actually went for Joe Biden. We actually flipped from Trump to Biden, and we're the only ones to do that. So excellent. I think it's going to come faster for us than for Kentucky, like you said. <laughs> right, right. But well, we're yeah. we're comfortable in Louisville. We we like that. We um we did receive uh, a fair amount of support in the city, but um back to the case. You know, when we when we launched this case. We had no support at all. I mean, even the local Democratic politicians, they were not on board with what we were trying to do. And, you know, in a bigger issue, um, LGBT activists across the country who had their 
roadmap to victory for marriage equality, you know, just thought we were insane and that we were going to do more harm than good because we very likely would, would lose our case and, you know, do, do damage to the movement. So um, it was, it was troubling at times and we really went out on a limb and, you know, it could have gone very badly. And, um, you know, we got a lot of breaks and things went very well and it, it ended up going very well. That's always amazing. And I think that's good is that I think it's good to see that pushback because when you talk about that road to success, I know a lot of people said, challenge it in the liberal states, challenge it in the areas where the courts of appeal districts are more likely to go our way as opposed to the Southern federal courts where it could really be damaging, if you will. Right. How did, how did you get involved with the interest groups that represented you? If we all represented by the ACLU or by a different group? Well, we didn't have any backing until we got to the Supreme Court. So oh, really? Oh, okay. See, I didn't know zero, that. Zero, absolutely zero. So we had two attorneys mm-hmm. who, um, you know, were doing all the work pro bono and, you know, they did it all for us. We paid court fees and, and whatever. But at the district level and at the um, Court of Appeals, we were not affiliated with any of the organizations. In fact, the ACLU kind of famously snubbed us for the reasons that I mentioned before. It's like they thought that it was not a good use of resources, you know, didn't have the potential to be successful. Um, so, you know, for like over a year, a year over a year, um, you know, we were kind of hanging on our own, working just with uh, our attorneys and we were our own PR people and, did, you know, did a lot of our own, uh, made our own talking points and did our own interviews and uh, made our own arguments for a long time. So we actually didn't get any support until we lost at the Sixth Court of Appeals, Sixth Circuit. And, um, and then all of a sudden there was the potential that we might go to the Supreme Court, you know, and then, and then you know, people were interested. It, it, that's interesting. And I will admit, you know, I do try to do a fair amount of research before I talk to a guest. I missed that. Somehow, I guess I didn't see it or I assumed that when you talk about court cases, there's interest group and legal support from the beginning, <laughs> but that's not the case at all. You weren't like a test case picked by an interest group. You all had to push for this. And Absolutely. then those, those big name groups only came in at the very end because, you know, Supreme Court case, that's like yeah. half a million dollars at minimum. This so to, you're right. Wow. I mean, you, you do think uh, that when, when big decisions get made, that they are so well planned and organized from a very early point. And that's not our case at all. I mean, as I said, for, you know, we, we had two attorneys that we started with, uh, who care Michael with Michael and me. So we had two attorneys, two plaintiffs that got this started and that was it. It was like us four against the world when we started. Oh my um, God. then, you know, that. as that progressed and we got closer to, to, um, going to district court to, to a ruling, we added, as I said, three other couples. And, um, and then finally, at the last minute, we had another attorney group in town, uh, Clay Daniel Walton and Adams, who volunteered to help. So they, so our attorneys and then this other attorney group came in um, and they were our representation at the district court and um, at the court of appeals. So they handled us through those two levels. Um, they didn't get paid anything all that time, you know, so for, you know, and they didn't actually didn't get paid anything until after the Supreme Court 
made its final decision because that's when you know they got to get reimbursed by the Commonwealth of Kentucky for their legal fees. So I will say, worked out well for them. You know, they got paid for all their hours. Eventually. You know, plaintiffs, plaintiffs get nothing. No. <laughs> you Except get nothing. Shoveling money and, and effort and time and everything else in, into the whole project and, you know, hope for the best. And, and you know, it worked out okay. Well, it, I mean, it worked out okay. I guess it would have been nicer if some of these groups that, these interest groups that really do seem to want a lot of attention would be there from the very beginning. I but, think they were they were hedging their bets, and that's what yeah. I was talking about before. You know, they've told us that we've had people. You know, I don't mean to disparage the ACLU in any way because it's a big organization. They have limited resources, as any organization does. They have to look at you know what's out there and you know where what's the best bang for the buck, right? Yeah, so I understand. Yeah. yeah, right. I understand why they did what they did. But the good news is, they did come around and they helped us at the Supreme Court so much as we prepared, you know, with briefs and, you know, prep work and support. It's like they could not have been better partners for us at that point. So we are so grateful for the support from the ACLU. Um, wish we would have had it sooner, but, you know, better late than never. Yeah, yes. And, and, you know, they're not the only interest group either. There are so many legal-based interest groups, especially ones that are focused on civil liberties and civil rights. I guess, you know, I, and this is where, as you know, me being naive, I just assume they were there from the beginning, but that's not the case. No, uh, no. But, so fast forwarding to fast forward to the day of you were, were you there for the arguments or for the yes. announcement? Yeah. So um, on the day of oral, oral arguments, so that would have been April 20. I could always remember this date because it's my, my husband's birthday, April 28. <laughs> 2015. Um, so uh, that was the day of oral arguments. And we actually had all of the plaintiffs there um, in D.C. Um, we had several events over a couple of days. There were rallies. There were some um, events where we brought merge equality plaintiffs together who had been part of cases uh, prior all across the country. Um, there, there, were, there were a lot of different things that led up to oral arguments, but we were there. Um, so interesting fact um, that I didn't know about was that, you know, there are lim there is limited seating available in the Supreme Court, and we almost all didn't get seated. And in fact, all of our attorneys did not get seated. So if, if you have to think about that, it's remarkable that, um, you know, a venue like that couldn't accommodate 37 plaintiffs and, you know, what, maybe 20 attorneys or whatever. But um, it's really rather modest. And I didn't know that until, until I went in for the first time. It's like, oh, this place is not that big after all. <laughs> you know, it's big in stature, but, you know, does, doesn't seat like thousands. Oh, yeah. Um, I know. I've, I've been in the building a few times. I'm a Supreme Court nut. And I've been, I've sat in on a case. It is tiny. Yeah. It yeah. is. You are so close right. to the justices, but it is not this huge place it is very right. small very hidden yeah. behind congress it's unassuming right. right one of the things that helped us and you might remember this about the case so when they did oral arguments the uh, the court decided that they wanted to have two sessions back-to-back -back sessions so there was uh, an hour and a half session that dealt with question one and then an hour session that dealt with question two and so question one was 
about licensure. So can states, you know, should the Supreme Court rule that, you know, all states are required to license same-sex marriages? It's like, if you want to get a license, can you get it? Um, the second question was our question that dealt with, should um, states recognize same-sex marriages from other legal jurisdictions? So fortunately, we were able to break our plaintiffs up um, so and attorneys so that they got to attend one or the other section. Uh, so we were actually in the second group. So you know we had a set of people go in for the first group, they exited, and then the second group came in for the second question. So we were all there and it was dramatic, it was intense, it was exhausting, <laughs> everything you can imagine. Um, you know, uh, and and you know, we were kind of just passive um participants. You know, we went in and you know, we sat in the court, you know, the attorneys did all the, the arguing. It's like there's no testimony or anything like that. It's just an argument. Um, but my gosh, by the end of that day, I'll tell you, I was exhausted. I, I don't want to have to ever do that again. <laughs> Yeah, you just, you just get to sit there and listen. You're just listening to all these legal arguments, half of them citing cases or case law that you're not familiar with and citing precedent that, like, I never went to law school, so I have no idea what that means, but. <laughs> well, there was there was a lot of that, especially, I write about this in my book, too, about um, at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, because that was really lengthy. I mean, that was like four hour, four and a half hours of of court proceedings, because at the Court of Appeals, what they did was they took each of the four states from um, the Sixth Circuit and they presented. So it was like a half. So Kentucky had a half hour for the for, um, you know, both sides for each side. So it was an hour, of Kentucky, an hour, of Tennessee, an hour, of Michigan, an hour, you know, Ohio. And talk about getting into the weeds. It's like by the time that was over, it's like, why are they even arguing about this stuff? It's like, I don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, they were they were really into it. <laughs> one of the things, one of the questions that kept coming up over and over again, especially at the Court of Appeals, um, you know, there was one of the judges who just hit us over the head over and over again about how it would be so much better if you could just do this at your state level and, you know, change people's hearts and minds and, you know, get that amendment reversed. And it's like, yeah, I agree with that. But you know, that's not gonna, that would not have happened in my lifetime. I mean, in the state of Kentucky, <laughs> it would probably have taken, you know, 50 years to get that done with a lot of effort. And so there are some things that, um, you know, need to be resolved, I think, whether it's at the, you know, court level or at a higher federal level. Um, the Equality Act would solve that problem for states like Kentucky and, and Texas and, you know, a lot of others. And, Unfortunately, many of them happen to be in the South um, that just can't seem to get that kind of legislation passed. There's just too much resistance um, locally. So, um, yeah, if we can if we could get that Equality Act passed, that would be a great help. That mean means we would have to stop lobbying our legislature. So, you now we do we have a big rally every year in Frankfort, Kentucky, at our state capitol, where we bring hundreds and hundreds of people. We lobby our state legislators and, um, you know, it, it's kind of a cool event, but, you know, after you've done it for 10 years, it's like, you get tired of doing that. And you say, all right, Come on, let's like, get this done. You know, what are we still doing here? Uh, <laughs> 
That was such a great interview, Aubrey. Um, you know, I did want to mention that he has a memoir coming out in September called Gay, Catholic, and American, My Legal Battle for Marriage Equality and Inclusion. Uh, I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> and we would love to hear from you. So if you feel so inclined, please, there is a contact us form on our website. Um, or if you enjoyed the conversation, remember, we do have a PayPal button for donations. If you want to support um, Aubrey and I doing more episodes like this. Um, and also, please check out our swag. We have some. <laughs> <laughs> and you could find on our website, right? Yes. Go to our website, southernqueries.com. And we have a whole merchandise or is it a swag does is it swag page um i don't know what you titled it i think i just titled it store but click around you'll find it <laughs> well please don't call that page swag because then i'll feel really old saying it <laughs> you know just don't you don't we don't Maybe have to use that word merch. there we go hey merch i i'll accept merch yeah because that doesn't make me feel like the old Gen Xer Xenial that I am. So <laughs> look for the merch button. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for this time. We are going to see you next time when we will be talking about what India? God, everything <laughs> on weddings. Um, yeah. So we'll be talking about proposals, identity, and, um, you know, what it's like being a couple getting married in the South. Trying to find the venue, trying to go through that whole thing, right? Yeah. The planning process, yeah. finding the venue, hurdles that people had to jump through that they didn't think about before and um, whether or not it went well or not. And tips and tricks too. There's a lot of tips in there. So if you're getting married or planning to get married, stick around for queer, Queerly I Do with Southern Queries. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.